Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Abra Barons tells us why we shouldn't underestimate stewed fruit. I mean, I feel like there's no more elegant way to end a meal than some poached apples that have a little bit of cream poured over the top, and then there's like a cookie on the side. Plus, the latest in our Nerdy Job series is a lighting designer for operas. You really get to just paint on stage. Opera's really cool. (laughs) But first, it's our chance to sit back and unwind from the week that was with two excellent humans. With us this week, we have Christina Tucker. She's the host of the podcast, Wait, Is This a Date? Christina, welcome back. Hello, hello. I am thrilled to be here again. Also here is Margaret Willison. She is the communications director and faculty for Not Sorry Productions. Margaret, welcome back to you as well. Hello, Greta. It's a delight to be here. Okay, I want to talk about succession and we're giving a spoiler warning. So if somehow you do not know what happened in last week's episode and you don't want to know, we're going to talk about this for the next like four-ish minutes. Um, I would be truly shocked if anyone out there doesn't know this, but in Sunday's <laughs> episode, the show's patriarch, Logan Roy, died. It was a phenomenal episode. I think we could spend at least the next hour talking about the Ooh. acting and direction and writing. I mean, the whole thing. It was a phenomenal episode, but I would really love to chat about the spoileriness of it all because this was extremely spoiled for me. I did not watch on Sunday night. I did check Twitter on Sunday night and I found out what happened. But I mean, Vulture ran an obit on Monday morning. So I was definitely doomed. They weren't even the only ones who did it. It just seems like spoilers are definitely fair game now. And I would love to know what you think about that. I'm very conflicted, right? Because on the Mm. one hand, I'm like, spoilers, get over it. What I always say is that, like, if the most a narrative has to offer is surprise, then, like, it's not much of a narrative. Say that. (laughs) Just, like, like, be grownups. And, like, if you're on the Internet, like, be realistic about what that's going to entail. That said, (laughs) I did get to see this one before it aired. And this is one circumstance Mm. where I feel like the show did such a good job of making it so surprising that it was going to happen like I was just like gobsmacked Mm. I wish everyone got to have that experience and like I think it's fair to say you can have that top tier experience if you stay up and you watch it the night that it airs and otherwise you're going to have an equally great experience (laughs) just a little different yeah I think my edict is still correct and (laughs) I stand by it but I'm slightly more sympathetic to the naysayers this time Yeah. I mean, partly what made me think about it was a tweet from friend of the show, Bridget Todd, and she had written, are we as a culture no longer concerned about spoiling television shows that just aired anymore? It feels like the etiquette has changed rapidly. I mean, all it took for me on Twitter on Sunday night was someone tweeting, oh, he dead dead. And I was like, (laughs) oh, shit. 
<laughs> Christina, where do you fall? Because I completely agree. Like, to a certain extent, yes, the sp- that episode was excellent and continued to be excellent, even though I knew what was going to happen. But it does seem like there's very little concern these days for, like, preserving stuff if you haven't seen it the second it comes out. Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of like, didn't we have this conversation already? Like, didn't we go through this <laughs> yes. with Game of Thrones? Haven't we already yes. kind of decided, like, if you're online when the episode is airing and you're not watching, you're going to see some stuff. If you don't want to mm. see that stuff, this is your moment to log off. I do think <laughs> perhaps publications could tap the brakes a bit. Right? I don't know that we needed, you know, that night to have our like joke obits published that could have waited, <laughs> yeah. I feel. Um, but I kind of just feel like we have had this conversation unendingly since, you know, yeah. any kind of classic HBO, I'm sorry, Max <laughs> shows have aired. And yeah, you know what the deal is. I also, I've missed one episode of Succession in my life live. I was coming back for my brother's Mm. birthday when the finale aired last (laughs) season. And I was like, I literally can't look at Twitter. Like, I just can't do it. No, you just had to throw your phone away. And I just had to throw my phone away. I will say, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're talking to a lighting designer for operas later in this episode. And when we talked earlier this week, she gave me a spoiler warning for an opera that came out over 150 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't count. No, that's very that's, sweet of her, no. but that simply doesn't matter. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was extremely considerate. <laughs> also, like, what does anything else happen in operas besides like somebody dies? Yeah, like, they what? die at the end. I know, right? Yeah, no, she did. She did admit that. I do love that energy. So you mentioned Max, which I'm glad you did because it's something else I want to talk about. Because earlier this week. Warner Media, which owns HBO, announced they're going to change the name of the streaming service HBO Max to just Max. And what the fuck? <laughs> I think it's really shocking that like when HBO Max originally came to us, we were all skeptical. And then mm-hmm. low yeah. key, everyone was like, interesting programming, yeah. good back catalog. This is one of the better streamers. Yeah. And then they have just kind of been addicted to fumbling the bag since. And I'm not (laughs) sure what information they're getting. Famously, they're not inviting me to these meetings. But I kind of just feel like a real life person should check in with them and be like, hey, guys, just for the record, everything you seem to think about your service that people like about it, opposite. Do the opposite (laughs) of what you want to do here. It's very shocking. I mean, HBO Max does a good job of conveying what it is. It's yeah. All the stuff you like on HBO and some other shit. Yeah. <laughs> right? But it's still good shit. Yeah. Yeah. But you're like, well, it's it's HBO adjacent shit, so it must be great. I mean, sometimes exactly. it's Fuckboy Island, but like still. <laughs> still. And I guess now because it's Discovery Plus stuff, they're like, it has to have a wholly new name. I just don't get oh it. Goodness. I simply don't understand. <laughs> and again, gentlemen who run HBO or Max, or whatever we're calling it. I would love to <laughs> pop by for a meeting. I have some thoughts. Christina's available for consulting. I'm available for consulting. Why is the network now named after the, I don't know, like genderqueer fuck them who's going to date Miranda on the newest season of <laughs> Sex in the City? Like, I don't know that to be an actual plot. I'm just guessing. Like, I'm not like, ooh, Max, I want to hang out with them. I'm like, oh. Max, they sound tiresome. Well, and like the maximalism of it all, too, it's just like, ugh, I'm tired. Yeah. You know? <laughs> We're all tired. But speaking of historical moments on Twitter, 
I was alive to remember what it was like the day that uh, Apple announced they were going to be naming the iPad the iPad. And everybody was like, oh, like a maxi pad. And like, wow, TBT. No, I know. And like three minutes later, there were um, things being sold on Etsy that would be like covers for your iPad that were shaped like maxi pads. (laughs) And we all thought that it was like the most ridiculous thing in the world. And now like, it's an iPad. (laughs) It's an iPad. Yeah. No, you're totally right. You're totally right. I have no doubt we'll get used to it. I just think it is dumb (laughs) yeah i think we should make fun of it for as long as we possibly can at least you know i think that that's our our duty (laughs) like our solemn duty yeah exactly it is our responsibility frankly as the online community (laughs) yeah as the two online we must (laughs) Mm -hmm. so yeah speaking of two online speaking of twitter uh more weird stuff happened on the platform this week uh Mm -hmm. this time it involves npr which i thought was very interesting uh, to clarify, Nerdette is produced by WBEZ, which is not NPR, but which does like pay a subscription fee to NPR for the shows that it airs. Welcome to my TED Talk. <laughs> uh, so this is all because of Twitter's new badge system. Initially, Twitter had labeled NPR as state-affiliated media, which is extremely incorrect. And then they changed it to government-funded media, which is still very (laughs) inaccurate. Um, And as a result, NPR has actually stopped tweeting to its almost 9 million followers. It is the first major news outlet to make the move. Mm -hmm. I think this is very interesting, partly because, you know, NPR is not particularly known for, like, taking big stances yeah they're not like a get in the fray type of spot yeah exactly yeah so i'm super curious especially to hear what you two think about this one and if like how intensely you've even been following it as you know as you say extremely online people (laughs) yeah i mean it feels like just another death knell for twitter i mean i think as we watch these kinds of things and it happen and knowing that npr does not get involved in these kinds of online frays very often Mm -hmm. i think they're kind of setting a standard i don't know if other news organizations will follow it exactly to the letter but it is a huge loss for the platform it's a huge loss for like information on the platform and i do think it is one of the kinds of accounts that could kind of exit the platform and really have a noticeable difference Mm -hmm. um, to how the platform feeds us information and how we talk about things. And I do think it's just kind of like, I mean, I'm going down with the ship. You are. Yeah. Yeah. We we both are. I'm watching people get into the lifeboats and be like, I guess I'm going to keep playing my violin. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that reminds me of a piece of art I have that says, like, yes, the ship is sinking, but isn't this music exquisite? <laughs> See, I think that's the hardest part of being uh, like one of the one of the people who's going to go down with the ship of Twitter. It's like the music isn't exquisite. Like, it's actually just like no. the user experience <laughs> of being on that website now is just so bad it's like how many ads of melora harden selling me oh my god Selling Margaret, me. those are the good ads. I are you know. kidding? I'm getting Mama the cash Mia. For gold they ads. are pushing Mama Mia at me so intensely. Sports betting I, ads. I think you mean. I think you mean Mafia Mama. <laughs> I do mean Mafia Mama, but I knew exactly what you were speaking of. I support any Mafia Mama in the space. Um, but it really is. It's just like. It's wild how quickly and subtly it starts to Mm. be terminally janky. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's one. And then two, it's just like, I'm uncomfortable being privy to Elon Musk's mental breakdown. 
Like, if he needs to have this Menti B, like, could he have it in his own space? Like, I can't keep sitting here watching this man desperately try to be funny. It's just, it's it's uncomfortable. And I just, like, I don't think it's fair. If he has a humiliation kink, he should pursue it elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I do understand. Like, technically, I did not consent to, to watch his humiliation kink. But at the same time, I am amused by it. I mean, it's inc- again, talk about fumbling the bag. Like you, you bought this to be the greatest poster of all time and you're flopping this hard. Like what an yeah. L what to an take. L. It is pretty exquisite. You know, it yeah. certainly is something to titter at, one could say. And titter I do. <laughs> oh, and titter we shall. Well, Margaret, Christina, thank you both very much for coming on. This was just such a pleasure. An absolute joy to be here, Greta. Thank you for having us. It's a thrill to be here, and I'm so happy to not be like Logan Roy, heavily delayed. If you've listened to the show for a while, you already know and probably love Michigan-based farmer and chef Abra Barons. When her first cookbook, Roughage, came out, she extolled the virtues of cabbage here on Nerdette. She came back to the show in 2021 to talk about Grist, a book all about grains. Both give cooks at home the freedom to experiment with the ingredients they have rather than follow a specific recipe to a tea. Here's a recipe, but here are three different variations of flavor combinations that in my mind, you would eat that in the summer, or you could put it with these other things in the spring or these other things in the fall and so on. Now Abra is moving into the sweeter side and taking on fruit. You know, eat eight portions of fruits and vegetables and people don't really tend to focus on the fruit as a component in that recommended serving. Her new book is Pulp, a practical guide to cooking with fruit. What I find the most compelling about fruit is that I think it swings savory so well. And so, but I was like, if we try to do three different variations on sweet and savory, like it's going to be a 800 pages long and be just drowning people in stuff. So we changed it up a little bit and kept the format the same in that it's organized. Each chapter is a fruit organized alphabetically. Yeah. Each chapter is then broken out by preparation technique. And then for each preparation technique, there's a sweet recipe and a savory recipe. It's amazing. So yeah, I thought just as an example, we could zoom in on blueberries because there's mm-hmm. such a great variety even just in that section. You have blueberry oat groat and chicory salad, blueberry puffies. I definitely want to ask you about those ones. You also have roast chicken over blueberries with cornbread and lemon, which sounds gorgeous. There's blueberry spelt muffins, venison with parsnips and blueberry sauce, blueberries and griddle cakes. And then you have like four different ways of preserving blueberries too. I mean, it's such an amazing, like that in and of itself is such a bounty right there, you know? Thanks. Yeah. And the preserving section, you know, is something where this is, you know, by no means is this a like strictly canning book, Mm -mm. Um, but a number of people that I talked to as I was kind of doing the you know, the research and the pre-work for this book was, you know, what are your biggest hurdles with having fruit in the house? And a lot of people said, I don't even buy fresh fruit anymore because it always goes bad. Um, And so thinking about not just like, okay, now you're going to make 20 jars of strawberry jam, but instead you've got like, you know, the bottom quarter of a pint or a box of blueberries and you're going out of town, what can you do to just be sure that something happens with them? 
That is so helpful because I think about, you know, like living in Chicago, I don't even have that much space in my kitchen, let alone like I'm not going to can any, you know, I might do like a couple jar, like freezer jars of something, but like that's all I really have the space for here, Mm -hmm. you know? So that smaller scale is so helpful. We use frozen blueberries kind of all season long because they thaw really well. You can bake with them, you can cook with them, you know, all sorts of different things. And then when they're in season and we have a big box, it's like you're just eating them by the handful off the <laughs> counter kind of thing. <laughs> it's funny thinking about pickled blueberries because my first thought was like, ooh, I don't know, that sounds weird. But then the way you describe it is like, yeah, it's lovely on like pumpernickel bread with some really nice cheese. It's like, oh shit, that sounds amazing, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's really nice to use as a component. On yeah, like a cheese course, or if you're doing, um, I love it with a grilled cheese or mm. um, over any of those richer meats. So this book does have a fair amount of meat in it because mm. those richer cuts of meat tend to pair really well with that tang of fruit. Amazing. Okay, so what the heck is a puffy? This looks so amazing. <laughs> it's a it's a made up term. Uh, <laughs> so there's a phenomenon. Uh, at least in kitchens where I've been uh, called a cook's treat or chef's treat. And um, puffies are definitely that. It's like the scrap of the puff pastry just baked off. And then you can put it with any number of things. And it's just like a flaky. I usually dust it with a little bit of sugar and a pinch of salt, maybe some olive oil um, to give it kind of that like fruity richness and um, bite of the olive oil. And then use that in a place of a cookie or something like that. And so for this Mm -hmm. recipe in the baker's toolkit, there are a couple of different types of curds. So like lemon curd Mm -hmm. or um, rhubarb curd, things like that. And I just love blueberry and lemon together so much. Mm -hmm. And so when I was thinking about these aren't like, you know, long, I need to make an elaborate dessert for something, but it's like, you've got people coming over in the middle of summer what are you going to have? Well, there's probably some puff dough like in your freezer. You can just roll that out, pick little lemon curd, some blueberries and make these little sandwiches that are like messy and fun. And yeah, (laughs) (laughs) they sound amazing. Well, and I have to say like this baker's toolkit thing. I mean, this is amazing. You have like literally over a hundred pages in this book that are just like, here are all the cakes. Here are all of the batters. Here are all of the doughs. Here are all of the curds. Like that alone is so comprehensive. I'm not a natural baker. I'm not somebody who like thinks up an elaborate cake and can execute it. But um, I, I have been lucky enough to pull together a variety of recipes over the years. And so this is really, I mean, it's truly what I lean on and we use it all the time at Grainer Farm. You know, when we're thinking through the dessert that we want to do for that week's farm dinner, it'll be like, okay, well, let's do a, you know, a crepe and some fruit and a nice warm filling. And so that's the crepe recipe that we use, Mm -hmm. you know, so I I knew that they were good recipes because I've been using them for so long. Well, and it's so cool because I feel like, you know, especially the way I cook and bake, I love to bake, but I follow recipes. And I think what I've always loved about your books is that they really kind of help me expand my brain to think of things in an ingredient first way instead of like, oh, this looks good. I'm going to buy everything on this list that I need for it, you know? And so to be able to think, you know what, this cake would be lovely. And I have these beautiful blueberries. Let's do it is so exciting. Awesome. I mean, I, I, that's so meaningful because I know that it is a challenge for a lot of folks. And I feel that way. You know, I was talking to somebody this weekend and they were saying, how do you come up with menus? And they were an interior designer. And mm. I was like, 
Uh, I don't know. How do you pick How do you decorate a room? Exactly. How do you pick out paint for a room and then also know that that couch is going to look good with it? You know, that I like that fills me with anxiety and trepidation. (laughs) Um, And so this is meant to do that. And hopefully, you know, it is kind of like flexing a muscle with a lot of these baker's toolkit recipes. My favorite is the cloth boutique recipe, um, Mm. which I always traditionally, I got from my neighbor up in Northport, who is a cherry grower. um, And it's his wife, Kathy's like cloth boutique recipe, but we use the batter for so many things like cranberries, plums, Um, you could do it with blueberries as long as they're pretty tart. I mean, it really transcends it. And we've started, we've had a number of more folks who are avoiding gluten and dairy. And so Mm. we make it often with oat flour and oat milk, and it's just great. So it's a really versatile thing. So that's another one where you're like, I've got a quarter cup of four different types of fruit. You can always pull together a cloth with tea. That's so cool. Plus it's kind of fun to say, um, the same for Dutch babies, you know, the, it goes with so many different things. One thing I noticed in here, which I really loved is stewed fruits, which I feel like kind of get a bad rap. Do you agree with that? Or am I making that? I just, you know, like maybe it's just the word stewed is like maybe not necessarily super appealing at first glance. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I do think you're right. I think they get a bad rap. I feel that way about poaching too. Yeah. Like poached stuff had like a heyday in the eighties and then now everybody kind of like turns their nose up, but it's a really, they're both really wonderful cooking methods, especially stewing something because you then get all of those other flavors really compounded because you're eating it all together for poaching stuff. I mean, I feel like there's no more elegant way to end a meal than some poached apples that have a little bit of custard or cream poured over the top. And then there's like a cookie on the side. That's so beautiful. So speaking of, you know, figuring out menus and recipes, how do you decide how complicated a recipe needs to be? Like I think about you have one in here that's for pears with salted caramel and crumbles and that's Mm -hmm. it. And it's I love how simple that one seems because I feel like that's all the pear is asking for. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's. I really love that one because I think it speaks to the different ways to cook for people um, Mm. in that, you know, there's also a pear tart recipe in that chapter that is like, you're making a dough, you've got a caramelized onion base, there's, um, you know, all these different things um, and it's multi-step. But, and that can be really nice and it can be a fun way to spend time. But then a lot of times it's sort of, I love when people come over for dinner sort of on a whim in the middle of the week. And Mm. this was inspired by my time working at Who's Your Mama Pie Company with Paul Feeney in Chicago. And um, again, Cook's Tree, when we would make the crumble pies, inevitably some crumble lands on the sheet tray and inevitably you eat that (laughs) Um, because it's there and you're hungry. Um, And then I was thinking, you know, there's an appetizer where you take pita bread and dip it in olive oil and then ducca. And it's sort of the same idea. It's like, you're taking this thing, you can, you know, swoop it through the caramel sauce, press it into the crumble topping. And inevitably I have crumble in my freezer so I can bake it off in a like rush if someone is coming over. Um, And it just, it's a very relaxed thing. And I think that the more we can do to inspire people just to 
you know, cooking for people is about generosity and having people together and not, you know, the perfectly molded thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'm on my way over. I hope you're ready for dinner. Perfect. I've got (laughs) crumble in the freezer. (laughs) Well, Abra, thank you so much. I feel like I could just talk to you for days. This is so much fun. Thanks so much. After the break, we are going to go to the opera. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Up next, we have another installment of our Nerdy Job series where we take a peek into a person's very specific and maybe a little strange job. And today, we are going to the opera. Hi, I'm Marcella Barbeau. I am a lighting designer for theater and opera. When it comes to lighting design, I feel like my idea for what happens is vague at best. I have a general sense that involves like colored sheets of plastic and a lot of spotlights. And when I ran that by Marcella, she said I wasn't exactly wrong, but of course, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot of math in lighting design, which, um, to be honest, is not my strong suit. But (laughs) luckily, we have, you know, a lot of programs that help us generate that math. But, you know, one of the first things that you really need to learn is making sure the light is hitting the things that you want it to hit, the people or the set. So um, we use what's called photometrics um, to figure out what degree size of light you need. And like simplified terms, you know, there's smaller circles and there's bigger circles. And, you know, we try to get <laughs> we try to get like the right size circle in the right place. It might not be surprising that color theory is also an important part of the mix, too. We start choosing the colors. So choose what color works for, you know, a show in Santa Fe or a show that's based in Uh, Italy, or a show that's mostly in the nighttime. That planning can start months or even a year in advance. For example, Marcella is already working on a show for 2024. And during that planning phase, it's super helpful for Marcella to know what the production's costume and scenic designers are envisioning, too. I know, like, so many things about fabric. I learned that, oh, not every black piece of fabric is black. Like, some of them use a little bit of dark blue to get the hue of black that they have. But when you put a certain color of light on that fabric, the blue will show up more. Um, So you kind of have to tone that light to make sure the costumes are reading the way the costume designer intended as well. On top of the math and finding that perfectly sized circle, lighting design is both a creative and a collaborative process. As a theater artist, I think all you really need on stage are good actors and a good script. And that's what theater is. Like, that's what theater was in the Greek times. And what we do as designers is we just give them the space to tell that story on stage. You really get to just paint on stage. 
Marcella has both a master's degree and a bachelor's degree in lighting design. But even way before that, she knew she was destined to do something with theater. My mom was the theater teacher of my high school. In 1993, my mom left rehearsal for Fiddler on the Roof to go adopt me in China. And then she came back and, you know, that show opened. And there's like, I used to have a bunch of substitute teachers at my high school who remembered being there when they were in school. And I was like in my little playpen in the theater while she was there doing the show. So I very much grew up with theater. Um, And I kind of just kind of kept the path because nothing else was as interesting to me. I've just never stopped. I just kept going. For her job, Marcella travels all over the place. We talked to her in Oregon, where she is working with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Before that, she was in Columbus, Ohio, for a production of Rigoletto that, you know, of course, is the 1851 Italian opera by Giuseppe Verdi. There's this giant storm scene. So we could design this this storm that kind of started upstage behind this downstage wall and then slowly but surely kind of started moving forward. There's like this timpani that like does the thunder. And this flute that kind of does the lightning. And then as the scene grows and the storm grows, the flute gets louder, the timpani gets louder. Like the storm is just so apparent from the orchestra. Lightning is like really, really apparent and it's flashing everywhere. At the end of the show, spoiler alert, um, Rigoletto uh, is given his dying daughter's body. And there's even like little hints of the storm in that music. We were all kind of able to like pick up on those little cues and do like little nods to the storm and the lightning. And the spotlights on their faces go out and it's just kind of like this whitish gray light that's like kind of after the storm. And then the curtain goes down and that's the end of the opera. Opera's really cool. Partly what I thought was so fun about talking to Marcella is that her enthusiasm for opera is contagious. And that's so cool, partly because opera can still seem, you know, kind of esoteric and boring. There's a reason why La Boheme is written the way that it's written. Look at what tonic note the composer used and what exact scale these these composers used to tell the story. It helps inform your design and it helps inform your direction. And I think that's really fascinating. It's very nuanced and nerdy, but <laughs> but it's really fun. Marcella has gotten to the point in her career where she can do freelance work all year round. She doesn't have to, you know, make ends meet by bartending anymore. But things have gotten a lot more tenuous since the pandemic because so many theaters shut down and many people just left the industry for good so they could find more steady work. Marcella says she's grateful to be able to stick around. Theater makers in particular, are very fortunate to do exactly what they wanted to do. We all want to be lighting designers. We want to be scenic designers. So, like, we're really fortunate in order to do that. And um, to kind of remind ourselves of that daily, I think, is really important because sometimes you do get tired and you get frustrated with the process, um, especially with, you know, sometimes the lack of support we've been seeing in the post-pandemic times. And that's really hard, but... You know, we're not doing brain surgery. I wouldn't necessarily not say we're not saving lives. Is that like a triple negative? I think I just made a triple negative. (laughs) Because I do think art does save lives, but we get to do what we want. And not a lot of people get to say that. 
That's Marcella Barbeau. As I mentioned, she is working at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival at the moment. We're going to be highlighting people with extremely specific and intriguing jobs all month. If you know of someone who could be a good fit for the series, let us know. You can send us an email, nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. You can DM us on Instagram. We're at nerdatpodcast, whatever works. that's it for this week. I kind of can't believe I am saying this, but we are super excited because next month, Nerdette is turning 10 years old. This is completely insane. What is time? It's crazy. But we want to celebrate. And part of that celebration for sure needs to involve you. We would love to hear from you. We would love to know, you know, why you listen to the show, what you like to do while you listen. If you have any favorite moments from the past 10 years, let us know. You can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. And you could very well be featured in a very special birthday episode. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman. J.P. Swenson makes our newsletter and our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. See you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.